Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, if our podcast today sounds a little bit different, um, it's because we had some technical difficulties this past Sunday, and uh, so we're having to re-record this uh, in my office here today. So uh, with that said, if you got your Bibles, and as always, you want to follow along, our uh, passage today is going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And the title of our lesson is Pure Spiritual Milk. In the late 16th century, uh, which would be the 1500s, there was a religious reform movement that rose up uh, in England and specifically within the Church of England. Now, this movement came about at a particularly interesting time in the history of, of Christianity. It was after the Protestant Reformation, so it was after Martin Luther and uh, all of that. And it was also after the Church of England had split from the Roman Catholic Church. So there had been a lot of change, obviously, within Christianity and within the, the church as a whole. However, for this particular group that rose up, this religious reform movement, <clears throat> This split from Catholicism, this this Protestant Reformation, uh, wasn't enough. They believed that the Church of England was still too similar to the Roman Catholic Church in its ceremonies and its rituals. They, in fact, they wanted to eliminate all ceremonies and practices that were not rooted in the Bible. Now, as you can imagine, the government who ran the Church of England And the church itself, well, they didn't like this. They felt like they had gone through enough change and and they were fine with the status quo. So they began to persecute this this religious reform movement and put them in jail and, and other things. And so in order to escape persecution and in order to practice their religion freely, they took a a fairly drastic step, and many in the movement began to migrate to the American colonies in the 1620s and the 1630s. In fact, the first group, which I think there was 102 of them, came over on a ship called the Mayflower from Plymouth, England in 1620. Now, today, of course, we call them pilgrims, but then they were known as the Puritans. Now, J.I. Packer wrote a book called A Quest for Godliness, and in this book, he writes this about the Puritans. He said, Puritanism was, above all else, a Bible movement. To the Puritan, the Bible was, in truth, the most precious possession that this world could offer. His deepest conviction was that reverence for God means reverence for Scripture, and serving God means obeying Scripture. To his mind, therefore, no greater insult could be offered to the Creator than to neglect his written word. And conversely, there could be no truer act of homage or service to him than to prize it and pour over it, and then to live out and give out its teaching. Intense veneration for Scripture as the living word of the living God and a devoted concern to know and do all that it prescribes was the hallmark of Puritanism. Now, I, I open with that today because I, I want to tell you, I, I intensely admire the Puritans' love for God's Word. 
And I believe that on the whole, we have lost that in the church today. We've lost this veneration of Scripture. Now, the question is, how do we fix it? Well, obviously, I'm just one person in one place, in one church, in one Sunday school, uh, or one Bible study. Uh, So what do we do? Well, for us, it can start with one lesson. You know, over the years, I've taught hundreds of lessons, and, and God willing, I'll teach hundreds more. So this is just one out of many. And, and let's be honest, in six weeks or six months, nobody may even remember that this lesson got taught. Yet I want to do my best with this one lesson to motivate each of you to come to the point where you long for God's Word in your life. To realize that just as food is to your physical life, God's word is to your spiritual life. I want you to be able to say like Job in Job 23:12, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of So, with that said, let's go back to today's text. Now, we finished up at the end of chapter 1. With Peter saying this, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. So Peter has just told us at the end of chapter 1 that we are born again. We have new life through the Word of God. This is a Word that's imperishable. It's living and abiding. In other words, it goes on and on and on and on and on. So if you've been born again through this Word, then the new life you have inside of you is an eternal life. And you are eternally secure in the family of God. Now, With that said, we turn the chapter, and he starts off with, therefore. Let's look at verses, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. So, or therefore, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander, and like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now, let's begin with the first part. Put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Now, we already know that he's going to tell us that we need to long for this pure spiritual milk of the word. My question is, why would he proceed that with this? Why would he proceed the command to long for the pure spiritual milk of the word? Why would he command uh, proceed that with a command to put away malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander? Well, one of the ways the word of God creates desire for the milk of God's word is by destroying desire for other things. You see, if you look at that list, those are all desires. Malice is a desire to hurt someone with words or deeds. Guile is a desire to gain some advantage by deceiving others. Hypocrisy is a desire not to be known for what you or who you really are. Envy, of course, is a desire for some privilege or benefit that belongs to someone else, 
and because of the fact you resent that they have it and you don't. And slander, of course, is a desire for revenge and self-enhancement, which is often driven by this deeper desire to deflect attention from our own failings. See, here's the thing. These things cannot coexist with a desire for God's Word. If you really want your desire for God to grow, if you really want your desire for His Word to grow, then those other desires, are, or think of them like weeds in your heart. Malice, guile, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. If you allow them to exist inside of you, they, they will choke out the desires for the goodness of God and the, and the Word of God. But as you weed those things out, as you get rid of them, as you put them aside, desires for God will just go stronger and more intense. So Peter's point, I think, is this. The desire to taste and enjoy God's goodness and His Word cannot flourish in the same heart with desires that produce things like guile and envy and hypocrisy and slander. Now, with that said, let's turn to the second part. Verse 2, like newborn infants, long for. Now, that word means to crave or desire the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Now, I want to stop right here and have a discussion about something that I call spiritual fatalism. I think this is one of the greatest threats to our growth in salvation It's what I would call spiritual fatalism. And this is the belief or the feeling that you are stuck with the way you are. You see, there are some of you listening on this podcast today, and in your mind you think that you've gone as high or you've gotten to the point with your relationship with God and this is as far as you're ever going to go. You look at other people and they have such a passion for God's word. They have such a zeal for his name. They they seem to have such a hope in his promises. And and you would love to have that. You would love to be that person. But in your heart, you just don't think you can. You you say to yourself, "Well, that's good for them, but that's just not me. I'm not like that." And you don't think you ever will be. You see spiritual fatalism is a tragedy in the church. And it's a tragedy because it leaves people stuck. It, it takes away all their hopes and dreams of, of, of spiritual change and, and spiritual growth. It, it squashes the excitement of, of living. I mean, I was thinking of it this way. <clears throat> you know, a lot of times uh, preteen girls will go through this stage where their body's all out of proportion and everything's changing, right? And and can you imagine saying to that young girl, well, that's just the way you are. That's just the way you're always going to be. Don't don't, you know, just don't 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 wish or hope or 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 think you're going to be anything different because that's the way you are. See, the fact is that young girl is meant to grow. She's meant to change into a beautiful woman. How how tragic would it be to convince her of a kind of physical fatalism that, that her growth has stopped and change is impossible? But see, the fact is, that's what many of you have done in, in the spirit. 
you've convinced yourself that you're that this is as far as you can go. You've convinced yourself of a spiritual fatalism or you've let the enemy convince you of of that, that you can't go any further. But you see, spiritual fatalism is much worse because greater things are at stake. And just like that young girl who's meant to grow into a beautiful woman, you are meant to grow into a beautiful, mature Christian follower of Christ. In fact, you should grow your whole life. You should never stop. Yet people go on living year after year after year without a passion for God, without a zeal for His name, with no joy in His presence and no hope in His promises. And why? Well, that's just the way I am. And they just settle in. Now, to that person, Peter writes this command or gives this command, long for desire, crave the pure spiritual milk. You see, in this text, God is commanding us not to be spiritual fatalists. In fact, He's he's commanding us to desire. Now think about that for one second. Think about how amazing that is. A command to desire. A, A command to feel longings that we may not feel. A command to feel desires that we may not have. I mean, is there anything more contrary to spiritual fatalism than that? You see, spiritual fatalism says, I can't create desires. If they're not there, they're just not there. And God says, desire the pure milk of the word. Now, let me just go ahead, if I can, and address your objection. Many of you, even as you heard me say that, will say things like, well, wait a minute. How can you command me to have a desire? How could I ever obey a command like that? How does a person just produce a desire? You you may as well tell a lame man to walk. Well, can you imagine such a thing? Who in the world would ever have the gall to tell a lame man to get up and walk? The Puritan John Bunyan, who lived from 1628 to 1688, uh, wrote a small poem. You may know his name because he's the author of the Christian uh, classic Pilgrim's Progress. But he wrote a small poem, and it is one of the best statements I have ever heard about the difference between the law and the gospel. Very short poem, only four lines. But as I said, it's one of the best statements I've ever heard about the difference between the law and the gospel. It says this, Run, John, run, the law commands, but it gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. You see, in the old covenant, God gave commandments. Run, John, run. But by and large, he didn't give the divine enablement that overcomes the deadness and the depravity and the sickness and the rebellion of the human heart. But in the New Covenant, Jesus comes along and gives us even harder commands. In other words, he bids us not to run, but to fly. I hear people talk a lot about how Jesus lowered the bar, but he never lowered the bar. In fact, he raised... Jesus said, uh, you've heard it said, you shall not murder. He said, but I tell you, if you call a man a fool, you're in danger of hellfire. 
Jesus said, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, if you look at a woman and you think about it in your mind, you're just as guilty. See, his commands are even harder. He bids us fly. The difference is he gives us the power we need to fulfill them. In other words, he gives us wings. Ezekiel prophesied about this in Ezekiel chapter 11, verses 19 to 20. God says, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and I'll give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. In 2 Thessalonians 1.11, Paul writes this, To this end we always pray for you that God may make you worthy of his calling and God may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. You see, that's the difference. It doesn't leave us up, leave us, leave, leave it up to us. He puts his spirit within us. He enables us by his power to fly. Philippians 2, 12 through 13, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who is working in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You see, what all this says is this. Yes, it's important to have desires for the Word. Yes, it's, 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 it's important to have desires for the goodness of God. But what is just as important as that is having the trust in God that He's going to give us what He commands. You see, if God says to desire and we don't have that desire, then we need to trust Him that He knows something that we don't know. In other words, He must have some power that we don't have. If he commands us to do it, then there must be a way. That is the opposite of spiritual fatalism. Spiritual fatalism says, well, I can't do it. That's just who I am. It's just never going to happen. But see, faith said God commands it, so there must be a way. And I don't know about you, but I will not settle for less than what God commands, even if he's telling me to fly. Listen, after all, if the Word of God is powerful enough to create new Christians, to raise the dead to life, according to Ephesians 2, then isn't the Word of God powerful enough to create desires in languishing Christian souls? Don't be a spiritual fatalist. The same Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead lives inside of you, Romans 8.11. And He can create desire in you just as He created new life in you. Trust Him and ask Him. I'll paraphrase uh, John Bunyan's poem if I can. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news, the gospel states, it bids desire and then creates. Now, let's go back to our scripture. Long for, crave, desire, what? In 1 Peter 2, 2 in the, in the New King James Version, it says this, As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. In 1 Peter 2, 2 of the New American Standard, it says like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect. But in the ESV, which is a version that I, that I really like to use, it just says this, Long for 
the pure spiritual milk. Now, why the difference? Why is it that some translations say the pure spiritual milk of the word and the ESV just says the pure spiritual milk? Well, the phrase of the word is not in the original Greek. The original Greek just says long for the pure spiritual milk. Well, why would some translations add that? Well, it's been added as an explanation. After all, where does pure spiritual milk come from? It comes from the word. So it's not unfair to translate it that way. Let me let me give an example why I think it's a good explanation. If you go back in, in the ESV and you look at uh, verses 2 through 3, it says this, Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. And then it says this, If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now, it's talking here about newborn babies, and I don't know if you've ever seen a newborn baby uh, latch on to its mother's breast for the first time. But after it tastes that milk, after it tastes that sustenance, after it tastes that goodness, that craving is going to be there. You don't, as I said in my lesson um, Sunday, you don't have to give them a PowerPoint with a bunch of bullets and tell them this is what you need to do. No, it's just natural. That by tasting, they it creates a longing or a craving. So in that verses, there's a connection there between the longing and the tasting that the Lord is good. Like I said, just like a baby that's got its first taste of its mother's milk. After that, it's game on. So which is it? Are we to long for the milk of the word? Or are we to long for the milk of God's goodness? Well, here's the thing. There is no contradiction. After all, how did you first taste that the Lord is good? Well, Peter told us, you've been born again through the living and abiding word of God, and this is the word that was preached to you. See, you taste God's goodness, or you tasted God's goodness for the first time when you were born again through his word. You you taste God's goodness every day when you open his word and you let him speak to you through his word. Word And so I don't think there's any contradiction here. Since you've been born again by the Word of God, now long for the Word of God. If you began your life with the Word, now sustain your life with the Word. Now, the, now Peter tells us three things very quickly about the Word of God. First of all, the Word of God is pure. The Greek word means literally not deceitful or not watered down. Merchants in that day, dishonest merchants in that day, they would add water to their goat's milk or cow's milk in order to make more profit. They would water it down. But Peter says this is not watered down. It's not, uh, 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 it's not um, adulterated. It's not, it's not dishonest. In fact, it, what this is telling us is the word is pure in the sense that it will always tell you the honest truth about yourself. It will always expose the very thoughts and motives of your heart. You cannot hide from it. Hebrews 4, 12-13 says this, The Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of their heart. You see, Let's be honest, we tend to deceive and flatter ourselves. But the Word of God cuts through all of that deception. It cuts through all of that flattery. 
and it just lays out the honest truth so we can deal with our problems. Now, I'm going to have to give you a warning here. There are churches all over America today where the Word of God is being watered down by preachers who want to make everybody feel good about themselves. But that's like that's like you and I going to a doctor who gives you sugar pills. He tells you everything's going to be okay. Here's these pills. They'll solve your problem. But they're just sugar pills. You see, that's like these preachers who want people to feel good about themselves, but they never make them or bring them to the point of dealing with the root cause of their problem, which is sin. But you see, the Bible is pure. The Bible is honest. It always confronts our sin, and it always presents God's remedy because that's the only way to real, lasting healing. The second thing that Peter tells us about the Word of God is that it is spiritual or rational. Now, this is really interesting to me. The word spiritual in the Greek comes from the word logikos, L-O-G-I-K-O-S, but that word also means rational. It's the exact same word, spiritual and rational. Rational, of course, means something is based on reason or logic or sound judgment. In other words, it's based on facts. So think about that. Peter is saying this milk is spiritual or it's rational. And what he's trying to tell us is that it's grass with the mind. See, human reason must always be subject to Scripture, but you cannot know God without using your mind. The Puritans were great believers in being educators of the mind. They believe that God's truth must affect the head as well as the heart. In fact, they re- they regarded religious emotions or religion uh, emotions. Let me say it again. They regarded religious emotions without knowledge as worse than than useless. Now they weren't against emotions, but they felt like your emotions had to be based on the truth of God's word. Now, if we would just take that into account. This balance would correct many of the excesses of our day. I I meet many Christians who are so subjective in their life. They just operate on feelings um, that are completely devoid of a scriptural base. On the other hand, if the pendulum swings the other way, I, I meet Christians who are all about scripture, but they're afraid of emotions. But see, like the Puritans, they believe the Word of God ought to fill our minds with the knowledge of God and move our hearts with His majesty and His love. The third thing that Peter tells us about the Word of God is that it is milk or that it is nourishing. Now, Peter here is referring to a mother's milk, obviously, because he talks about newborn babes. Now, we need to be careful here and we don't get caught up with Paul's contrast in 1 Corinthians 3, 2, you remember there Paul talks about the milk of the word versus the meat of the word. He comes to the church and he said, hey, uh, when I left you here, you were on the milk of the word. When I come back, you should already be on meat, but you're still on milk. That was Paul. Okay, so don't, that's not what Peter's talking about here. Peter is looking at a mother's milk as the perfect food for children, perfect food for people that are growing. You know, when you when you look at mother's breast milk, it, it really is an amazing thing. Not only does it have everything it needs to nourish her baby to grow, it will actually actually immunize her baby from a lot of illnesses. In the same way, 
God's Word not only has everything that you need to uh, grow toward salvation, but it will also protect you from the many spiritual diseases uh, which will attempt to destroy uh, the Christian life. And remember, we are never to reach a place in this life where we can stop growing. We are always to be feeding on this nourishing milk. It is simple enough for the youngest infant in the faith, but solid enough for the most mature saints. So that's what the Word of God is like. It is pure, it is spiritual, and it is milk. It has everything you need to grow in your salvation. So if you're listening to me today and you're struggling with spiritual fatalism, you're struggling with this idea that I just don't have the desires that I need to go further, fight. Fight. And fight it two ways. First, fight to destroy the evil desires that are in your heart. Things like envy and guile and hypocrisy. But secondly, fight to taste the goodness of the Lord every day in His Word. Even when you don't feel like it, open that Word. Begin that begin that reading of that Word with a prayer. God, create in me a desire, a longing, a craving for Your Word. And then sit back and let God do what He does. Give you wings to fly. <laughs>